This is Eli Lake, and welcome back to The Re-Education. Our topic today is the Iranian threat to cultural freedom in the aftermath of the horrific stabbing of novelist Salman Rushdie. My guest is Nazanin Ansari, the managing editor of the London-based Kehan newspaper. This new video appears to show suspected attacker Hadi Matar being removed from the stage just moments after witnesses say he stabbed author Salman Rushdie in the neck and torso. It happened in western New York just as the 75-year-old took the stage to give a lecture on artistic freedom. The amphitheater goes nuts. People are screaming. We couldn't tell if he had a knife at the time, but it was a surreal thing. The 24-year-old is now in jail, facing charges of attempted murder and assault. He's pleaded not guilty. The motive for the stabbing is still unclear. We just heard a news report on the shocking attempted murder of novelist Salman Rushdie. I want to focus on one element of that report, the last bit. It says that the motive for 24-year-old Hadi Matar is still not known. And while in a legal sense this may be true... I think we can all surmise what motivated this young sociopath was a fatwa, or religious edict, from 1989, issued by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran at the time. However offensive that book may be, inciting murder and offering rewards for its perpetration uh, are deeply offensive to the norms of civilized behavior. Khomeini issued the fatwa on February 14th, 1989. He urged all Muslims to murder Rushdie and anyone else involved in the publication or editing of his novel, The Satanic Verses. Khomeini offered a $1 million bounty and $3 million if it was an Iranian citizen who murdered Rushdie. The Ayatollah was in some ways late to the game. The book was published in the fall of 1988, and there were already protests throughout the Muslim world to have it banned. In the United Kingdom, British Muslims tried to persuade the government to charge Rushdie under their blasphemy laws. The book was banned, for example, in Pakistan. A significant public pressure on booksellers like B. Dalton forced it at the time to remove it from its shelves. And there were plenty of bombing threats at any bookstore that was selling it and discussing it. Here is a Muslim protester interviewed for a Canadian news segment on the controversy from 1989. Quality of religion around here. We want equality. But the fact is, is that the book is hurting the sentiments. I mean, we we cannot. We have have to have a balance here. And, you know, we cannot be compromising freedom of speech with the dignity of a group. That's wrong. Because we're a multicultural society. And if we want to be multicultural, we have to reason and respect others. Now, Rashi's first reaction to the uproar that his novel caused was to quip that he wished he had been even more critical of a religion whose extremists were acting so atrociously. But then after the fatwa, Rushdie went into hiding. In that first year, he had to move locations on average every three days. At one point, he tried diplomacy after Iran's president at the time and current supreme leader Ali Khamenei said the death sentence may be revoked if Rushdie repented. Rushdie issued a very careful public statement and had it cabled to Iran's foreign ministry as well. It said... I recognize that Muslims in many parts of the world are genuinely distressed by the publication of my novel. I profoundly regret the distress the publication has occasioned the sincere followers of Islam. Living as we do in a world of many faiths, this experience has served to remind us 
that we must all be conscious of the sensibilities of others. Now, this was very carefully worded in the genre of, I'm sorry you were offended. The Iranians were not having it. Soon after Rushdie issued this statement, the Office of Iran's Supreme Leader issued their own communique that ended with this gruesome sentence. Even if Salman Rushdie repents and becomes the most pious man of all time, it is incumbent on every Muslim to employ everything he has got, his life and wealth, to send him to hell. Now, it's interesting because Ayatollah Khomeini would die a few months after he issued the fatwa, and there's no evidence that Khomeini, you know, who was sort of a, a fanatic religious leader, ever even read this. And yet, it had caused such a sensation that he believed that he had to issue this fatwa, and to this day, in some ways, it remains in effect. Here is Reisi Khorasani, who was at the time, in 1990, the chairman of the Parliamentary Committee in Iran on Foreign Affairs, and he's speaking to 60 Minutes. It is not going to be lifted. It cannot be lifted. Because? Because it is a religious fact, which remains there forever. And there we is not, nothing that Salman Rushdie can we have, do? We just don't want... We don't care whether we can do or he can do something or not. It's not our business. There are plenty of people who are doing wrong things. We don't care about them. We don't make any attempt to solve their personal problems. It is his personal problem. And there's no apology? There is no amendment? No. No, it's wrong to speak of an apology. And it is a lesson to many other Muslims who should simply uh, think of what they want to say before they say it. Now, Rusty managed to survive, but others associated with the translation and publishing of his book were not so lucky. Hatoshi Igarashi, the Japanese translator of Satanic Verses, was stabbed to death in 1991. Aziz Nassim, a Turkish humorist who worked on a translation of the novel, inspired a lynch mob who burned down a hotel in Sivas where he was staying. Nassim survived, but 37 died in that fire. The novel's Italian translator, Ettore Capriolo, was stabbed as well, but survived the attack. The rage of the fanatics continued to boil throughout the 1990s. Here's an Iranian English speaker interviewed in 1998 by the Associated Press. Where are you, man? I want to have a dialogue with you by a machine gun. You know, since 10 years ago, you're walking, you're running to the hail. I'm your angel, I'm your savior. We, we are Mustafa Mazen. We will kill you. We obey the Imam Khomeini the Great. Now one would think, with all of this pressure, that the response in the West would be a kind of unified defense of Rushdie. I mean, if there is an exception like this, to freedom of expression, then really freedom of expression doesn't exist at all. But in fact, the response was somewhat mixed. I recommend an excellent piece from my friend Graham Wood in The Atlantic this week on various kinds of responses at the time. And Graham noted that there was one version of this, which was a kind of qualified support for Rushdie's freedom of speech that also tried to balance it against the rights of pious Muslims not to be offended. Rushdie himself famously called this kind of approach to free speech the butt brigade, meaning that I support free speech, but 
you have to take this into account and so forth. And by the way, if it is familiar, it should be, because today a version of this argument that there are opinions or words or works of literature or just books in general that are so harmful that they should be banned is, you know, very much kind of on the continuum of Ayatollah Khomeini. We see this obviously in the trans debate with regards to Abigail Schreier. And we saw this in other instances in terms of the Islamic world, including, I might add, something that we talked about in an earlier show, which was the response from the George W. Bush administration to cartoons of Mohammed that were published in a Danish newspaper. So in this sort of butt brigade category, I want to highlight former President Jimmy Carter, who presided over the original hostage crisis with Iran during the revolution in 1979 when he was president. And so 10 years later, former President Carter wrote this. While Rushdie's First Amendment freedoms are important, we have tended to promote him and his book with little acknowledgement that it is a direct insult to these millions of Muslims whose sacred beliefs have been violated and are suffering in restrained silence the added embarrassment of the Ayatollah's irresponsibility. Yuck. Now, I prefer the response from Rushdie's dear friend and a friend of mine, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, who offered his spacious apartment in DuPont Circle to the novelist in this period. So here is Hitch in a BBC special on the 21st anniversary of the fatwa. Give a listen. This was the most extraordinarily reactionary challenge to the idea of free expression that had occurred in my lifetime. The theocratic head of a foreign state offers money in his own name for the suborning of murder the offence being that of writing a work of fiction and the purported victim, or intended victim, being someone who isn't an Iranian and uh, lives in England. It was rather the same feeling as I later had on the 11th of September 2001, a direct confrontation between everything I love and everything I hate. And I guess this really gets to the main point today, because Iran is not just a threat to its own people, though it certainly is, nor is it just a threat to the Middle East or Israel though it certainly is there as well. We have to understand that Iran threatens the free world because Salman Rushdie is not just a British citizen or an Indian Muslim in this case. Salman Rushdie belongs to all of us who cherish the written word. And what I mean by that is that if you read Salman Rushdie or you plan to read Salman Rushdie, he's part of our kind of overall cultural world, our republic of letters. And fanatics, like the clerics in charge of Iran, seek to silence Rushdie or anyone else who may offend them. We are giving them a veto. So we have to understand that this is what Iran's regime is. It has not reformed. It has not moderated. It's the same gang that ordered the murder of Salman Rushdie 33 years ago. And when we understand that, then we can get on with the very difficult work of supporting the Iranian people in their struggle to topple this corrupt tyranny. Because the current approach of not just the Biden administration, but most of the European leaders, is to pretend that when they are trying to negotiate a revival of the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, that the representatives and diplomats sitting across from them are representing some kind of normal regime. They are not representing a normal regime. They are representing a vicious gang of fanatics who 33 years ago put out a death sentence on one of our most acclaimed authors. And sadly, on Friday, he came very close to serving it.
Well, right now, the re-education is so lucky to have Nazanin Ansari, who is the managing editor of the Kehan newspaper in London, not the Kehan newspaper in Tehran, and we'll get into the story of this newspaper, to join us today to talk about the absolutely horrific stabbing of Salman Rushdie and sort of what all of this really tells us about the nature of the Iranian regime. Nazanin, thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thank you so very much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, let's. I want to start by maybe you could walk us through the initial fatwa from Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini in 1989 against Salman Rushdie and, you know, sort of what it meant when he did that. Well, the problems with Salman Rushdie, the Salman Rushdie's problems started before Khomeini's fatwa. fatwa yes, there was huge uh, reaction in Pakistan and in, in, in all over the Muslim world. And all of it, yes. yes, it started in Pakistan and in other parts of the Muslim world. But I think at that point of time in 1989, the regime in Iran was feeling the pinch that it was having problems at home. So, but it's it the end out. of the Iran-Iraq War. Yes, and as you know, the I know we we have been talking about the Iranian economy and how weak it is from a long time. But it had started. I mean, the the people in Iran were already suffering then, and there were all there was already a lot of divisions within um, the ruling elite in Iran. And I think uh, Mr. Khomeini, uh, Khomeini felt that by riding very high on this current, he can right. somehow, you know, put a close to all the divisions that were taking place. And indeed, the fatwa created, you know, turned the world's attention away from what was happening inside Iran. But well, and also, the, as, and you bring up a good point, the end of the Iran-Iraq war, there's a famous statement from Khomeini where he said he felt it was like drinking the chalice of poison. And so he felt it was in some ways not a dignified and peace. And he did it because the war that had taken such a toll. And this is also towards the end of his life. So I think what you're suggesting is that there was a political element here, both in terms of Iran's leadership of the Muslim world, but also in terms of the domestic, you know, to try to distract Iranians, you know, after this horrible year that lasts nearly a decade and everything like that, the horrible war. Yes, I, I think, you know, it is interesting. It would be interesting to point out that there was a period that I think about seven, eight years before the real end to the war, that the Iranian army had forced the Iraqis out of the Iranian soil. But still, Khomeini made the decision to continue the fight inside Iraqi territory. Right. And also, at that time, I remember I was a young student. I had just graduated from university and I was working for the UN Information Center. And we were receiving all these reports about the Iranian youth that were being sent mm. uh, to clear the landmines inside, you know. Right. They were, given, they were given keys and told that this is the key they to were paradise. Given, yes, they were given keys, plastic keys to paradise. And there were reports that they would... The clear minds, by the way, audience. I just want to make this very yes. clear. This is what the regime in Iran did 
to clear minds, they sacrificed children and lied to them, telling them that if they did this, which was a certain suicide mission, they would be going to paradise. And the most tragic part of this, giving keys to these young children, was that in the beginning, they used animals. And at some point, the animals wouldn't go forward. Mm. So they decided to change their strategy. And there were in the beginning, many, you know, Basijis and those zealots who would go, mothers who would send their children. But at some point, they stopped. There weren't as many as before. And let's not forget, there were hundreds of thousands. So they started sending Basijis to schools and theaters, movie theaters, and just picking out young boys Mm. and sending them to the war front. By the way, we should say the Basiji are, I guess you could say, the kind of equivalent of what the Nazi youth. It's a militia that is technically not part of the government, but it is controlled by the regime. They are part of a cult of sort of, of extraordinary kind of fealty to the supreme leader and that's what I just wanted. That is the Basiji. The Basiji act as kind of an unofficial arm of the state. Similar situation we saw in Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela. It's a, it's a, t- a, t- a tactic often employed by tyrants. And just, you know, as a footnote, whereas Basijis at that time were very zealous, nowadays the Basijis of today are very different in mm. the sense that many join the Basij just as a way to improve their livelihoods because Basijis get more subsidies and food and other things. So it has become more materialistic. Yeah, Um, well, I want to talk about that in the context of where Iran is now versus at the end of the 1980s. The other big thing maybe you can talk about in terms of the context that leads up to the fatwa is the year before you have the mass execution of political prisoners, and that's an Avian prison, which, you know, is just still a ghastly atrocity that many Iranians still talk about today with great shame and horror. And I just want to add, I mean, the re- one of the many reasons besides the fact that it's horrible to execute, you know, how many, I don't know, it's thousands of people in one day, but also the fact is that when Ayatollah Khomeini comes to power in 1979, there is a broad coalition of Iranian groups. There are liberals, there are communists, there are lots of Iranians who have nothing to do with kind of the fundamentalist side of it, the followers of Khomeini, that participate in the revolution because at the time, Shah Reza Pahlavi was seen as somebody who, you know, was deeply corrupt and cruel and did, was out of touch with, with most of Iranians. And as soon as, you know, Reza Pahlavi is, is, is deposed, the, the fundamentalists purge the revolution. So this is a this is kind of the final chapter in that, which is that there is no, I mean, there was no pretense, I think, by 1980 that the country was, you know, going to be this sort of democracy that was promised. But obviously, you know, killing people who were once, who were allies in the revolution, that's the key point, right? Yes, you are right in the sense that the revolution was a coalition of the, uh, right now, many say of the, the communists and the left, and also the the religious fanatics. Yes, and liberals. Certainly. I mean, there were liberals who opposed Pahlavi as well. I mean, it was a very corrupt regime, even though it was, I think, better than... I'm not arguing 
you know, there's very few regimes that are as bad as what Khomeini created in 1979. But it was there were lots of people who opposed Pahlavi at the time. There was yes, because the reason they were opposing opposing, I mean, there were there was the Islamic Marxists, the MEK that you see right today, uh, Mujahideen Akhar. Yeah. You had the Chinese leftists, the Fedayun. You had those uh, groups who had been working and fighting alongside George Habash, the PFLPG, Muammar Gaddafi. Oh, well, that would have, had, that would have included Carlos the Jackal. Uh, yes. And Although also, he's not an Iranian, obviously, but yeah, I, I, yeah, that's an important connection. Another um, uh, great dirtbag terrorist who converted to Islam in prison, yeah. Yes. And also, you have to also appreciate that our northern neighbor, Russia, had already, the Soviet Union at that time, I mean, Russia and then afterwards Soviet Union, had invaded and expropriated Iranian territory, whether it was under the previous dynasty, under the Qajars. Oh, yeah. uh, or, and that's why, like my ancestors, they moved to Iran from the Caucasus during one of the treaties that the Qajar kings signed with Russia and they gave part of so the these were humili- These are known in Iranian history as very humiliating treaties with Russia, which is why there's yes. a lot of anti-Russian but also anti-British sentiment in Russia because of the histories of colonialization and things like that. Yes. And then come forward to, you know, end of, after the Tehran conference at the end of the World War II, we have the Soviet Union under Stalin come and suddenly take move troops to Azerbaijan, north of Iran. Right. And certainly Iran was a prize for the Soviets at that time. It, was, it provided the corridor to warm water ports. And there was an active campaign by the leftists and the Soviets to really try to undermine the Pahlavi's dynasty. Now, when you talk about corruption, yes, I, I think it's better not to get into the details of it. But 40 years after the revolution, the history speaking. Well, um, I, I, when, as I said, there's no comparison. We, we, we now have, we see what life is like under Khomeini. It's stagnation. It is also corruption. It's, you know, they, I mean, was repression under the Shah, but there was, there's more repression under Khomeini. And he's, a, you know, and, and he created a regime that is now terrorizing the rest of the world. It's just what the Rushdie Fatwa is about. So let's talk about that. So that's the context, everybody, for... 1989. By the way, at this point, Ayatollah Khomeini is at the end of his life. He will die in four months after he signs the fatwa. And this is the context. What you're saying is that this was, a, in some ways, a cynical political move on the part of the supreme leader to distract a country that had been ravaged by a horrible war with Saddam Hussein's Iraq, that to maybe make a play to be a, considered a leader of the Islamic world. There's constantly, since 1979, everybody should know this, that there is a kind of a, a, a long-standing fight for the broader Islamic world between the more conservative Saudi monarchy, which is obviously the place of Mecca and Medina, where all Muslims have to have a pilgrimage at some point in their lives. That is the Sunni kind of power. And then there's no caliphate, but Saudi Arabia, the, the Saudi family is the sort of protector of these holy sites, versus the, the great Shia regime, which is Iran, and there is a kind of, you know, competition, a political competition between who will be the leader of the Muslim world. And so that in some ways is part of it as well as what you're saying. Yes, it's very true. I mean, 
from the time of the revolution and forward, there suddenly there was a battle for the spirit, for the soul of Islam between yeah. the Islamic Republic and Saudi Arabia. And we see from then on, both within the Shiite sector and the Sunni sector, extremism growing. Mm. And this was for the soul of Islam. And unfortunately, it has devoured many lives and it has devoured great freedoms for both nations. Indeed. Now, what was the response at the time of the fatwa on Rushdie inside of Iran? Because we, we've seen the footage of people who were enthusiastic for this, you know, bloody minded order. But I would imagine that having I've been, been to Iran once, but as you know, I've been covering the story of the, the Iranian democratic resistance for some time. I think that in private, many Iranians must have felt that this was nuts, right? Or what do you, can you talk a little bit about that? That what was, what, how did Iranians feel that the leader of their country was doing something like this? Well, Iranians have been divided yeah. about Iran since the revolution. Sure. And since uh, an ideological regime took over, ideological, religious, fanatic religion, it's like a sect. Even yeah. for many Muslims, what we see, what's, you know, the elite that took over Iran, the Islamic elite that took over Iran, they were considered a cult. They, whereas before the revolution, mosques had a certain kind of freedom to be able to collect revenue from their right. followers. After the revolution, all this collection of revenues and then went to the state, to Mr. Khomeini and Mr. Khomeini's circle. And it is from there that it is passed down to religious seminaries, to different mosques. So it became a centralization of the mosque system under Mr. Khomeini. In Shiism, unlike Sunnis, we have different sources of emulation. Mm. But with the coming of the Islamic Republic, the sources of emulation, although they've got certain dependence as far as, you know, their, you know, prayers and small sermons, but as far as their source of revenues, it, they're all dependent on the state. So you have a centralization of the right. mosque system under one man. And also you now have, I mean, I don't know, when, when, when do they create the corrupt alleged charities that then kind of stuff their coffers with the seizure of property of Iranian citizens who've run afoul of whatever the corrupt regime? And that, that's a thing that Khamenei has this huge multi-billion dollar trust that he controls in addition to everything, right? Well, it started right at the time of the revolution when they started expropriating all the assets of those Iranians who were either Western educated, technocrats, doctors, whoever they did not like, they expropriated their assets. And they put it under this one foundation called the Mostazafon Foundation, the foundation for those uh, disenfranchised. And it became one of the biggest foundations. And anybody who would wanted to go back to Iran and, you know, get back their assets, they were advised, okay, you give half to Bonia de Mostazafan and we give right. you the rest. So this started right after the revolution. And then, you know, all these various foundations started to mushroom. And the biggest foundation that has cash, it has cash reserves, is in which is in Mashhad, and where 
Mr. Raisi's uh, uh, father-in-law is the head of that. And Mr. Raisi for some time worked there, I think, as well, if I'm not mistaken. But they, they collect all the funds that are coming to mosques. And they, they, the tourist business, they're, they're in, they have a lot of private business that has nothing to do with the mosque. And of course, you also have members of the Basij or IRGC Postars. Uh, that is, that's or, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iranian which is created, which is more important than the Iranian military in every possible way. And a part of that Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is is what's known as the Quds Force, which is in charge of external terrorism and all of the kind of terrible things that you see in the Middle East that are appropriate that are responsible from Iran is the IRGC or the Quds Force. And you know, I mean, if if you even look at the budgets of the government yeah. from year to year, <clears throat> there's one big allocation to all these private foundations. Mm. And and then there are also segments that no one knows where the money is going to. Oh, yeah. But, so it, they are just feeding off the wealth of Iran. And that's what they have done. For 40 yeah. years, Iran like, has been like such a, a bad, yeah. like a Like a tapeworm, a parasite. Yes. I mean, when like you look Iran, at... The, the, the country the, 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 and the people of it is the host organism. And then you have a parasite you know, you know, with a gun, so to speak. That... Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, yeah. the economic growth of Iran before the revolution, we were higher than South Korea, up in part to Japan and elsewhere. And now you look where we are now, we are far behind. So also, so... I should say, if you look at before the revolution, Iran is a fun, fun place. It's, it's, oh, yes. You could argue Northern... that... Right. Civilizationally, ancient Persia invented the idea of luxury. The Greeks get it from the ancient Persians. And there is a long tradition of wine, poetry, and great culture in Iran, which is in many ways negated by the ascetic cult as represented by the Islamic Republic regime that came into power in, in, in 1979. Yes, and more, I mean, fun aside, as far as the status of women and women's rights, oh, we were yeah. far ahead of many Western countries. I mean, in 1975, the Iran, Iran headed the advisory council committee for the first in Mexico for the first big conference for the uh, the uh, what the women's conference annual uh, annual conference for the women's year. You know, every year there is right. women's rights and women's day. Iran set the agenda. I mean, that conference in 1975 set the agenda for Beijing conference and for later developments. And it was the first time that governments around the world pledged their cooperation to help increase the status of women. Mm. And all those recommendations that came out of 19, of the Mexico conference and then the first co women's conference of the UN were implemented in Iran Yes, from 1975 onwards in the sense that every policy that had to be passed by the government would have to have a gender review and see how it would benefit women. And that's why many, many scholars and intellectuals, they do believe, and Iranians, they do believe that the biggest victims of the Islamic revolution were women because overnight we lost our rights. 
So the revolution in Iran, I mean, and that is the sad thing about the left, the secular left, that when they took part in the revolution, their women, even Mr. Musavi, who was one of the prime ministers under Khomeini and who later became the leader of the 2009 movement, his wife was wearing a black scarf and saying, I'd rather wear this than be and have this Islamic revolution than not have a revolution and stay with the Shah. Well, so- Adeline, you know, you, you raise an excellent point here. And it wasn't just the Iranian left that was hoodwinked and snookered by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who is a liar, and among other things. It was also the international left. The, the French postmodernist Michel Foucault was a great supporter of the Iranian revolution. There were editorials and op-eds in the New York Times that justified not only the revolution, but talked about Khomeini as a kind of almost Jeffersonian figure, a great Democrat for Iran. And some of this, because I think, is because the people were chastened by some of the brutality of Shah Reza Pahlavi's regime, particularly with his Savak, his secret police. Um, and that we, and that's part of history. But I think it was also there was a sort of blindness. Many there were famous reporters who, who were on the, the, the airplane from Paris where Khomeini was living in exile when he comes into uh, te- returns to Tehran. And he was feted. He was they wrote about him in glowing coverage about this incredibly charismatic religious figure who was trusted by all these Iranians. And nobody bothered to sort of scratch underneath the surface, except for a few people like the, the, the late Bernard Lewis, the, the great historian, who managed to sort of say, wait a second, have you been reading what this guy wants to do and what he's been saying? But he's fooled everybody at the end of the 1970s. I, I think, you know, he did not fool them. I think mm. they were... F- they wanted to, they fooled themselves, right? They wanted to believe. Exactly, for not having read his books. Yes. I mean, the revolution of 1979 was a revolution of misinformation. Because yes. if they had read, I mean, Andrew Young, Ambassador Andrew Young, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., even went as far as calling Mr. Defining, describing Mr. Khomeini as the Gandhi of the century. Did he do that? Yes. Oh, and, God. And none of them had read his books. If they had read his books, they would have known he, what thick mind he had, that he was talking about, sorry, you know, fornicating with goats and then, you know, how to fornicate with young children. None of them had read it. And that is the problem that we have faced. You know, this misinformation not being educated, not being informed at all, but yet being in positions of power to make decisions that affect the lives that has affected the lives of now we can say 80 million at that time when the revolution happened, we were like 30 million Mm. people. And not only in Iran, but now elsewhere. Well, let's talk about that because I want to circle back to, to the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. First of all, it was more than just a sort of religious edict, you know, from some God, from, you know, from Combe. It was, or let me ask you, was there a, an effort from the Iranian state through the Revolutionary Guard Corps and Quds Force, their terrorist wing, to carry out this order? Which is to say, it wasn't just a matter of 
if you are a fundamentalist, if you're a fanatic like I am, and you see a Salman Rushdie, you should kill him. Well, certainly there was that. And there was, it wasn't just a bounty that was put up on his head. But there was an effort. I mean, as I understand, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was there efforts from the state itself to actually carry this out? Well, I don't recall specific efforts okay. or specific incidents. I, sh I should have posed it as a question because it's not something I, I know for sure, but I wanted, that's what I wanted to ask. But the modus operandi of the Islamic Republic was that, you know, they would continue to export the revolution. It was an Islamic yeah. revolution that came to power. And it was an Islamic revolution that was to be exported throughout the Middle East and in Africa. That's why... From well, we know, we know some of the translators who were attacked of mm -hmm. Rushdie's satanic verses, that some of the uh, culprits who were charged were, 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 were Iranian citizens. So that's... And I'm talking about these. This is in Japan and in Turkey and other places that are not Iran. So it, it, it stands to reason that there was... It wasn't just a matter of creating an incentive. It was also trying to execute this order. Yes. And, you know, right after the revolution, you know, the Khomeini, Mr. Khomeini and the Islamic Republic used the services of international terrorists like Imad Mournier, like Carlos the Jackal yes. to assassinate anti-revolutionaries abroad. Well, we know that, that this is a separate thing, but let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. There was, I mean, you can talk about them. There's many in German, the Mykonos restaurant. I mean, there's what you want to talk a little bit about some of these awful incidences. Yes. I mean, in Paris, they assassinated, you know, a few, including the former prime minister, Shapu Bakhtiar, who was a social Democrat, actually, yes. who was from the left. Who opposed uh, the Shah. Yes, he had opposed the Shah. But at the end, you know, right, you know, he found that it was in the interest of Iran for the regime to continue because, you know, they're, but anyway, he was assassinated. We had the incident in Mykonos restaurants in Germany. Where Those Kurd were Iranian Kurdish leaders. Yes, they were assassinated. Then we uh, we had the incident of uh, in Argentina where the Jewish center was bombed. Their footprints uh, in London, they, they assassinated people. Even like we are, we set up Kahan London, set up its offices in 1984. We received a lot of threats. They tried to burn the offices down in the beginning. So they wanted to spread terror abroad. And it was in the name of Islam. And it was in the name of their version of Islam. Yes, it was part of their statecraft. It was part of their strategy, their national strategy. Was to was to exert its will and and, and through these kinds of terrorist attacks abroad, which gave yeah. them both deniable plausible deniability in some cases because they didn't acknowledge it out in the open, but also everybody kind of knew it was Iran, and that's one of the reasons why the fatwa against Salman Rushdie was so scary and taken so seriously by Scotland Yard as well as the you know authorities in the United States, the FBI and the Secret Service, because. They had the they've the, the Iranians had demonstrated this capability, and by the way, it's very much in the news right now. Masi Ellen Ajad is there were two plots to try to kidnap her from Brooklyn. There are plots to try to assassinate former National Security Advisor John Bolton. There are, were as well as former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as well former President Donald Trump. Doesn't mean that they will succeed, but they've made it very clear. The U.S. authorities made it clear that. There's active plotting along these lines.
But if I could also bring to your attention that one of the first assassinations took place in Washington, D.C. That's right. You're very good. I remember, right? And I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. It was the assassination of a gentleman of a diplomat, a former diplomat who used to work uh, at the Iranian embassy in Washington, D.C., and Mr. Tabo Taboi. And one day he opens the door, there's a, a parcel arriving from the post office mm-hmm. and the postman is bringing the parcel to him and it turned out to be the assassin. The assassin, he shot him dead to death. He fled and we know that he, he ended up in Iran and he's been in Iran for the longest time. I mean, since then, since the early 1980s. And he even featured... In a film, he played, he played, he became an actor. And oh, wow. He, yes. And that's how we found out that basically where he is, because his face was in a film. Anyway, that was one of the, I, I think that may have been the first time on U.S. soil that this kind of terror took place. Certainly after that, they followed the money trail that was, that got to this alleged postman. And it went through various banks in New York. And, but I mean, this has been a reality of the Islamic Republic. Whoever he, it doesn't agree with, they just eliminate. It How, is. Yeah. Okay. So, so this, this brings us now, there was a period after 1997 when Mohammad Khatami won the election to the presidency of Iran. And for our listeners, I should explain The president of Iran is not the same as the president of the United States, because the president of Iran does not really have the final authority on things. That belongs still to the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, who replaced Ayatollah Khomeini. But Mohammad Khatami was considered a reformer. And as a precondition for opening or reopening, I should say, diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom, he made a statement that Iran would no longer would no longer enforce, but would no longer hinder the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And you see in a lot of the news stories that, oh, well, in 1999, the Iranians lifted it, which is not exactly right. Can you explain why the fatwa is very much still in effect? It may not be that they, and by the way, I don't want to claim that the Iranians plotted this particular stabbing attack, this horrible stabbing attack that we saw in Chautauqua, New York. But I do want to point out that the there was never the, the fatwa was never revoked. And maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of what happened and why this line from Khatami um, really was was, for lack of a better word, bullshit. Well, you know, we've got this element of tariye called tariye yeah. in Shia Islam. I mean, what does that mean? It means, uh, it to, means that it's you are OK to lie to the infidels. Yes, yeah, okay. yes, for your survival. Oh, uh, oh yeah, it's okay so, to lie. That's a big thing in Shiism, by the way. It's not. Yeah, it's right. Yes. So I mean, because they're in a in a in a st- when you're in a state of war and you know it is about your you know existence, it is okay to lie. Yeah. So and certainly one has to. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Khatami, President Khatami, is known as the man who wanted to have the dialogue of civilizations and all that, let's not forget, it was under his rule and under his presidency and tenure that we had the chain murders 
Yeah, very important. Of intellectuals, of politicians who were of the left, who were not necessarily believed that, I mean, they were not necessarily against the Islamic Republic, but they did not abide by the same standards required of them. They were all eliminated. Writers, doctors, they would find bodies in, you know, on the side of the street and it went to a hundred, maybe more. And so, and they arrested the person who was actually within the intelligence ministry and they made him the scapegoat. And Mr. Khotami had all, all this time never took responsibility and said, oh, it's not me. There are those in the intelligence. Well, there's, there's reason doing. to believe that it wasn't him because the Majlis, which is the parliament of Iran, tried to pass reforms and they were overruled by the Council of Guardians because they said they did not, you know, cohere to Islamic law. But also we saw, we know that I think Khatami, I mean, I'm, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm, I know that, I mean, Khatami supported the students who protested in the uprising in 1999 at Tehran University. Mr. Khatami did? Well, I'm saying well, you know, he was powerless to stop the repression. We are, you know, he, he, he expressed, I think, some sympathies. They yes. were his constituency, but he was powerless. So it was... Yes, it was, it was an a, excuse. I'm he, sorry. It's okay, excuse. so you think it's you think he? he oh, was come a phony. on. Okay. I mean, no, I agree. I'm not trying I mean, to defend him. I'm uh, just saying. I mean, it, anybody who has been in power in Iran is yes. responsible, and you Except cannot. He, does, he doesn't have real power. That's my point. Well, I mean, even where is he now? Where yeah. is he now? Do we hear from him? No. No. Even when he came to, he was very good at smiling and trying to disarm, you know, the criticisms against the Islamic Republic by saying, oh, it's not me. Why didn't he resign if he didn't agree with it? Well, why did I'm not going to disagree with you. I have uh, a lot of problems. Oh, with if it. I resign, I, if I resign, yeah. there will be chaos. More chaos? Yeah, well, there already was great I, I agree with you. It was, listen, I'm not, and there's no excuse. My point was to simply say that there were many people in the West in the 1990s, the late 1990s, and throughout really the 2000s that believed that, you know, Khatami was this reformer. He represented a movement of people who wanted to reform and modernize the Islamic Republic. Therefore, we should engage with them. We shouldn't be so... All of this stuff is happening. By the way, the Clinton administration apologizes for the CIA's role in the, I guess, the coup against Mosadow, though it's... How could there be a coup? It's, you should look at, I was going to say, you should look into this because there, there are a series, there's sort of a, a legitimacy crisis before that. He, he, he closes the Majlis. But the CIA did have a role, I guess, in sort of some of the... Some of the well, you know, the CIA, the CIA documents that have emerged, and if you read the Daesh Boyandor's 1953 Revisited, yeah. certainly there was a plan but the plan was, you know, put aside because they thought it was not going to go ahead. And it was two days later, three days later, that it was the fatwa of the Ayatollah Kashani who brought people out on the streets against Mossadegh. Uh, by the way, Mossadegh, very important historical yeah. irony, which is that the, Mullah, the, the regime now in Iran will constantly make reference and the apologists for the regime in the West will constantly talk about Mossadegh and 1953 coup. And yet it was the sort of, you could say, the predecessors of 
the Ayatollahs today, the Ayatollahs at the time, supported the coup against Mossadegh. So if it wasn't yes. for them, there would be no coup. So it's an, an irony that it's now like sort of the grandchildren of the original clerics in Combe that are, you know, that, 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 that shed so many tears for Mossadegh. I mean, it's this battle of narratives. Oh, yeah. That, and that, you know, there was a time when I was at school and, you know, or later on when you had to write reports, when you became a journalist, you had to really go after the source, yes. knowing what's happening, finding the details and the facts. Whereas now it is just a regurgitating of myths. And this 1953 coup is one of the biggest, but I would not, I mean, I don't want to carry it further, but just to let, let you know that Iran was a, was a monarchy at that time. It was the king that was at the top yes. of the state. And it was him that was, it was the role of the responsibility of the king to appoint the prime minister and also of certify and, you know, confirm the majlis. It wasn't the duty of the prime minister to tell the majlis to shut down and to go. So what Mossadegh did, Mr. Mossadegh did at that time, was against the constitution. And there are many reasons why, you know, I mean, how could the king at that time do a coup against himself? Because a coup has to be against... You know, it does not make even sense. But no one had, same way that, you know, people didn't read Khomeini's books and thought that he was the Gandhi of the century. They also haven't been able, they haven't, probably they don't have enough knowledge and they do rely, rely on narratives of those who want that, that it, it serves a purpose of this anti-Americanism, this U.S., I mean, U.S. coup, this anti-American, America yeah. has been the great enemy, America, the imperialist. Now, maybe perhaps within even, within even the United States, the United States needed some positive, you know, you know, the CIA needed to show itself that, yes, we have had some successes. This is right after, and this Yorush Bayandor follows this narrative of when it started to become a coup. And it was right after the Vietnam War, where the U.S. had become, you know, had lost the Vietnam War, and they, it needed to have a success to its name. And 1953 was provided the best opportunity. No, no, no. Well, the, the, the U.S. loses the Vietnam War in 19, well, technically 1975, I guess, but. Exactly. But then right. if you follow, but if you follow. Oh, I see. Oh, you're they saying, oh, well, then, then, they, then they start claiming yes. credit for the, okay. I see. Yes. And where they start claiming credit, I mean, that's what. So I would push back I, a little bit because 1975 is when you see a lot of, you see the sort of fulminations that lead to the church committee in the United States. So you have Philip Agee, who is now revealing the CIA secrets. You have what's known as the family jewels, which was reported by Cy Hirsch originally. You have other kinds of efforts to, you know, break into FBI annexes and publish various documents that prove that the FBI was snooping on anti-war groups. So part of why I think it comes out in the late 1970s, I think that there's an element to this 
I think you're right. Like this is after the U.S. loses the Vietnam War. But part of it is just because this is a period in American history when many of these state secrets are being exposed. And the role in the 1953 coup is then first and then. But you're right. It does spur an anti-colonialist narrative, which is then picked up, of course, by the revolution in 1979. And there's a well, I mean, there are many very respected historians who will say if the United States had not done 1953, would we have gotten 1979? And it's, a, it's an, an impossible question, obviously, to answer. It's a hypothetical, but it's an interesting way to sort of look at it. But I would also just caution, I think some of this is just because, you know, by the late, by the night, by the middle of the 1970s, no state secret is really safe anymore in the United States. No, it's I mean, area of, yeah. of great upheaval. But I want to get back to Rushdie in 19, and, and yeah. in 1999. I'm sorry, but this is a wonderful conversation, doesn't it? So thank you. Explain, like, after 1999, when allegedly this fatwa is, you know, people are thinking it's kind of revoked. It's not revoked. And explain how many times after that you see a reaffirmation in Iranian society of the fatwa against Rushdie. Is that, I mean, just talk a little bit about that. Yes, I mean, the fatwa can only be revoked by the person who issues it. That's right. one thing. That's one interpretation. And Khomeini has, has been dead now for a long time. Yes. And even we have in 2015, Mr. Khamenei coming and saying that it cannot, that it still stands. And he even tweeted. And he's the supreme leader. So the supreme leader says, no, wait a second, the fatwa still stands. Yes. Overruling Khatami, who had been overruling already. So. Yes. Yes. And we have seen on a yearly basis, one one extreme society of religious fanatics and then others, you know, the most more conservative ones on a yearly basis, reissuing, you know, announcements saying that this fact was bad and, you know, so it is there now. So no one has, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, the only person who can revoke the fatwa of a supreme leader is another supreme leader. And the current supreme leader, which is Mr. Khamenei, and allow me to also add a footnote, the Islamic Republic, the Belayat al-Faqi that you see now, Belayat al-Faqi is mm-hmm. not the same Belayat al-Faqi, the rule of the jurisprudence. That, that's that what Belayat al-Faqi, I just want to make sure everybody yes. understands. It's yes. a very important concept for the current regime, but it's also a very important concept in Shiism, Belayat al-Faqi. Not in Shiism, not in all of Islam, because in real Shiism, in traditional Shiism, oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. And we are Iran is a traditional Shiite uh, Jafari sect. The only person, the only one who can combine politics with religion is the Mahdi, who is sinless, who has not committed any sins. Any man, any human being, all human beings have committed sins. So. It cannot be, you cannot have the, the rule of the mosque and the state together. Right. So the traditional way, Shia approach is, is known as quietism, whereas you would give guidance, spiritual guidance to the population, but you do not get involved in politics. Yes. That's traditional. Uh, the innovation, you could argue, from Khomeini is that actually we should run everything because he's a totalitarian. Yes, but then even after Khomeini dies, right, the, they change the constitution, and the powers that Khomeini has supersedes those that Khomeini had. That's why they call even you know Khomeini was in power. We called it Belayat al-Faqi, 
which means the rule of the jurisprudence. Now it's called velayat al-faqih mutlaq, the to- the total rule, the totalitarian rule of the uh, of course, uh, yeah. So yes. you know, this so, is a very yeah. important concept here. So this don't get fooled by I mean so-called reformers being elected in Iran because the real power is always in the hands of the supreme leader by design and by the way in the constant in the in the in the modified constitution there's a very important point so they can elect you know a, a, a trans lesbian as president and it wouldn't matter because the power in Iran is the supreme leader yes the power rests in the supreme right. one man and yeah. certainly i think the islamic republic certainly has more it seems to me there are more supporters who are still enamored by its vision outside of iran than it has inside iran that's an excellent point now before we go with a little bit of time we have left nazanin this is you've been so wonderful thank you for everything i want to ask you for our listeners what can we do in the west to help the struggle of Iranians to take their country back from these totalitarian thieves, these usurpers. What is it that you would like to see in terms of policies from the leaders of the Western world, the United States, the United Kingdom, and places where you are? What, what needs to happen? What, what if we, what, 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 what needs, what, what should we do from perspective policy, but what also, what can average people who are outraged by this regime do to to help the Iranian people in their struggle? Well, number one, for the leaders of Western democracies, they should call a spade a spade. Yes. They should they shouldn't try to, you know, like change the makeup or, you know, just you know, define the Islamic Republic and accept what the Islamic Republic is and not allow it to have leeways. I mean, in the past few couple of years, we've had a good show of force by and who have been able to have um, people's courts to, to keep, to make, to hold the Islamic Republic and its agents responsible for the murders that have been committed inside and outside of Iran. So in particular, we've had people's courts in London about 1988, but also in Sweden, we've had, you know, one of the Islamic Republic, those who was actually worked under Mr. Raisi at the beginning of the revolution, who really gave orders for many of the executions. So that's one positive thing. Mm. Another, I think what those inside Iran keep asking is that whatever they do is they need access to information, to correct information and access to Internet. And at the time, at, can Elon, it, Mu- Elon Musk, if he can give Internet through satellite link to yeah. Ukraine, he should do this for Iran. They should do it for Iran. Yes. Whatever they have done for the Ukrainians. They yes. should also do for Iranians. Yes. Because the sooner they do it, the better it is, not just for the Middle East, but also for North Africa and elsewhere. Because the Iranians that are on the streets and they've been on the streets for the past, I mean, for the past year on a daily basis, 
They come from all sectors of the population. They are savers who've lost their savings. They are laborers who haven't been paid for many, like up to three years. They're teachers. They're mothers whose children have been killed in peaceful protests by armed riot police with automatic weapons. Been arrested. Yeah. And uh, And to that woman who was who was just trying to you know, honor the memory of her son who was killed for no reason. They killed an Olympic wrestler. I mean, these are horrible people. The Olympic Committee has a special responsibility to make, you know, to have to make a symbolic gesture Yes, where women are not allowed in stadiums. You see, then they allowed, for example, what they can, when I say call a spade a spade, the when the Olympic Committee or or the Federation, a sports federation, says that we will we look upon this like women not attending stadiums, football association, they gravely, the next match they allow forty women in and keep the rest out, and then everything is finished. Actually, just follow through and call mm-hmm. it spade a spade. Just don't try to whitewash these yeah. little gestures. That's should, the Uni- should, 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 should the United States and Europe and all the great powers continue to negotiate with Iran on the nuclear deal? The nuclear, I mean, they are scared yeah. that there might be a war that they cannot control. And, and this is perhaps this is going on through their head that, you know, we cannot now that we're in war with with Russia and Ukraine, we cannot open another war somewhere else. Maybe that is in their head, but this already is a war. There is a war. And I wish instead of trying to negotiate for so long, since 2005, they would keep their red lines and not allow the Islamic Republic to divert the resources that are needed for the infrastructure, whether it's oil, uh, whether it's gas and others, to a nuclear secret nuclear program, I wish they would, they would not, you know, play the game. And they mm. kept playing the game. They're playing footsies, and it's not to anybody's uh, benefit. So okay. um, uh, a few more quickies. There have been people who I think are are serious about the Iranian opposition. I'm thinking of Azar Nafisi, who have told me in interviews over the years that, you know, sort of large-based sanctions on Iran hurt the Iranian people and that there should be another approach than simply expressing our displeasure with the regime through sanctions or sector-based sanctions, the kinds that affect the entire economy. Do you agree with that? Well, the sanctions, one thing we have learned, you know, the Mm -hmm. sanctions regimes in in Iran was development over the sanctions regime, for example, against Saddam Hussein. Mm. But still, it had a lot of caveats. And we learned that, you know, drip, drip sanctions don't work. Yeah, It had like, and then, you know, what you see with Ukraine, you know, it's a development of what you saw in Iran. And certainly there's a whole industry that has developed inside Iran to, to evade the sanctions yeah to evade sanctions plus they'll, but, they'll trade oil with with Russia and China no problem right it'll, it'll... and you know but let's not forget every time the regime gets more money yeah it diverts it to misplaced priorities 
That is, it diverts it to IRGC. It diverts it to its proxies in the Middle East. It diverts it to its own personal pocket. And even in the last year, when we see there's a very good report by Saeed Ghassaninejad, a foundation for defense of democracies, just published. Yeah, he's very good. The, yeah. He's very good. That in the past year, the Iran, Iran has, there has been an economic growth, but still for various reasons. First of all, the price of oil has gone up. Second of all, the Biden administration has been lax in, you know, in, in implementing certain sanctions. And also it's post-COVID and services are coming back together. But still we see that people are not being paid. Teachers are not being paid. Unemployment is going up. Inflation is going up. And there's all this money just getting outside of the country. Yeah. You know, so there are all these realities. You know, it's more complicated than say, this is good or this is not. The point is, this regime, as long as it exists, that is its raison d'etre. You know, to export its brand of revolution, its own brand of Islam. Yes. And it's a raison d'etre. Its constitution will not change. Right. Nothing. As long as it is, there will be this cancer, two more inside Iran, unfortunately, eating up the aspirations and the futures of the children of Iran and spreading havoc across the Middle East and beyond. One more kind of quick point I want to get from you, Nazanin, and thank you again for your time. Many years ago, I got a chance to interview the grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini. And he's, I was, and I still am very much of a proponent of what might be called, you know, nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience. But he said, in Iran, you don't understand. There's been so much damage that has been done by this regime. There's so much enmity that people have for these rulers, these corrupt, vicious men who run the country, that when there is a, when that regime falls, when there is regime change, when, when, when the tyranny topples, there will be violence. And the leaders know that. And I wanted to get your sense, is that kind of violence inevitable? Or is there a way to have a kind of velvet revolution? in Iran, which is, of course, I think everybody would rather have a velvet revolution than a violent one. Definitely. I'm all for nonviolent change. Yes. And I've always worked towards that. But the, the perpetrator of that violence has been the regime. Look at... Oh, I know. I'm not... No, absolutely. And people are angry. Yeah. It is true. People on the streets are angry, but it is, I think, the responsibility of the political elite of Iran well, many who are now exiled, right? Who are exiled, yeah. but who are active. And in the past couple of years, we have seen uh, more cooperation and more dialogue amongst them and more common, you know, shared projects. So certainly I think it is their responsibility to ensure that this period of transition, even though that it has been bloody and yeah. it might get bloodier, that it will end, that there will be a nice transition, a peaceful transition yes. to a new Iran. And I think that I is hope. the responsibility. I certainly hope so. And I think that is the responsibility of the political elite of Iran inside and outside of Iran to work together. Okay. Nazanin Ansari, 
This was a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for your time. And I want to just urge our listeners to check out Kehan in London. You do have English articles and they're translated. Yes. So you can, you, can, you can really read from a dedicated staff, a newspaper that is still trying to continue this tradition because Kehan in London is the remnant of the Kehan that existed in Iran before the revolution. Today, the Kehan in Tehran is, is a, a, a mouthpiece for the regime. But thank God that we have Iranian journalists who continue to try to cover this, cover their, you know, the, the news in their country and, and the, 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 the crimes of, of the regime. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the re-education, Nazanin. Thank you so very much for having me, Eli. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.